Well, we are indeed grateful that Evan and his sons are able to be here with us this Sunday, and I'm looking forward to Evan opening up the Word of, of God to us. We've been blessed by his preaching in the past, and I'm looking forward to hearing what he has for us today. So, Evan, if you would come, the pulpit is yours. Glad to be here, and thank you again to all of you who have reached out to us in the last two months in your prayers and cards and um, gifts. Um, it is, we, we have truly felt loved by the people of God. Thank you. Um, well, if you weren't here at Sunday school, I'm, I'm here with my best buddies, Elijah and Isaiah, my partners in the mission, um, young men of God that I, I believe his hand is on both of their lives in unique ways and in similar ways. Um, and it's, it's going to be rewarding and enjoyable to see how God uses them as they, they grow uh, spiritually and then linguistically in Thai and whatever other languages we work in. Um, so if you think to pray for me, pray for them. Pray that God would continue to um, stir and grow their, uh, their trust in him and their love for him and their love for the nations. And uh, this, this morning, I want to... Um, Encourage your heart with a, a big picture of the supremacy of Christ. I know you're in the book of Colossians, and Colossians in many ways is all about the preeminence and the majesty and the supremacy of Christ. So before we look at our text, let's pray. Our Father, would you please open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word, and we do pray that you would help us to, to admire and trust and rest in Christ this morning. And uh, I, I do pray, Lord, for clarity from your text that we would see Jesus in his name. Amen. Years ago, the uh, Anglican Bishop of Perth, Australia, was asked by a reporter this question. If archaeologists and historians could make a groundbreaking discovery, certifiable discovery of the body of Jesus in some tomb in Jerusalem, what would that do to your faith? And um, I wonder how you would respond if somebody were to ask you at work or just, you know, off the cuff, even put a microphone in your face. Um, what would that do to your faith? Well, this is how the archbishop responded. He said, well, nothing, for I believe that Jesus has risen in my heart, and that's really all that matters. And likely, he's referring to the hymn that says, you ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. Or compare that, contrast that with what an unbelieving Jewish historian, Pincus Lapid, who died in 1997, admitted. He says this in his, um, his book, Resurrection. He says this, When this scared band of the apostles, which was just about to throw away everything in order to flee in despair to Galilee, when these peasant shepherds and fishermen who betrayed and denied their master then failed him miserably, suddenly could be changed overnight into a confident mission society, convinced of salvation and able to work with much more success after the resurrection and ascension than before the resurrection and ascension, then no such vision or hallucination is sufficient to explain such a revolutionary transformation. And in another work, he says, in regard to the future resurrection of the dead, I am and remain a Pharisee. Concerning the resurrection of Jesus, I was for decades 
a Sadducee, meaning he doesn't believe in the resurrection. But he says this, I am no longer a Sadducee. I accept the resurrection of Jesus as no invention of the community of disciples, but as an historical event. And then he also says, the only explanation that I as a Jew can come up with in the whole story of Jewish expectation and the evidence that I can discern as a historian, I can only conclude that Jesus rose again on the third day. But I will not conclude that it makes any difference for me. Behold the hardness of the human heart. Or consider what the secular skeptic and Richard Nixon's special counsel Charles Colson concluded upon his analysis of the data of the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. He says this, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years altogether? Absolutely impossible. Or consider the ardent atheist and secular psychologist Jordan Peterson. He's recently admitted at the beginning of this year. He says this, The Bible is the prerequisite for the manifestation of truth, which makes it far more true than just true. It's a whole different kind of truth. And I think that's not just literally the case. In fact, I think it can't be otherwise. Then when he was asked in the interview if he believes in God yet, Peterson says, no, not yet, but I'm afraid he probably exists. Peterson is essentially saying the same thing that C.S. Lewis said in 1944. Lewis said this, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because I see everything else by it. Or consider the famous preacher of the 20th century, Haddon Robinson, who trained and influenced maybe more contemporary expositors today than maybe any other professor. Robinson was doing his PhD work at University of Illinois, and he tells this story of his first interaction with his PhD supervisor, the crotchety old German historian named Otto Dieter. And it says this, he says, in the Erie Classics Library where they come, quote, come and spray cobwebs every so often, sat Dr. Dieter, a chain smoker wreathed in smoke. Robinson recalls, he says, I went in and he said to me, well, what do you want? And I said, I want to preach. He said, preach, huh? You, you believe you need the Holy Spirit to preach? And Robinson says, well, yes, I do. And he says, well, you're out of luck. Dr. Dieter says, he hasn't been on campus in 50 years. But on the long library table, Robinson says, between them lay a pulpit Bible. Covered in dust, Dr. Dieter pointed at it, and he says, you know how that book differs from Aristotle, Quintilian, and Plato? I'll tell you, that book is alive. 
I don't know anybody whose life has been changed by studying these other books over here, but I do know some people whose lives have changed by studying that book. You see, the Bible is the most historically verifiable ancient document in human history. It is the gold standard in universities for how history is recorded, corroborated, archaeologically verified, and proven true. God has providentially preserved the sacred writings through the ages, escaping wars, book burnings, regime collapses, persecutions, political unrest, academic disdain, and social indifference. The Bible keeps showing up, proving itself as good, true, and beautiful. And if the historical, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth is literally true, then everything he claimed is true and everything the Bible claims is true which is good news for those who receive and trust it, of course, and trust in Christ as their king, because that is indeed who he is. He is an ascended king. And, the, and it's bad news for everyone else who views him as a myth, maybe even just a historical figure, a good teacher, a revolutionary, or anything else other than the only mediator between God and mankind. The two most important questions every person must answer are these, who is Jesus and what has he done? And the only way to truly answer these is to know what the Bible teaches, of course. So anytime a serious scholar, philosopher, historian, archaeologist, scientist, lawyer, or psychologist sets out to prove or disprove the Bible, they always retreat in defeat. Some admit their defeat, like the classic scholar Otto Dieter, the Jewish, a Jewish theologian and historian Picus Lapide, and secular psychologist Jordan Peterson, but some are too proud to trust in Christ, of course. Some, when they see how the integrity and the power of the Bible turns on the hinge of the, the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus of Nazareth, they, they echo Jesus' once doubting disciple Thomas and say, my Lord, my God. And Peter says in 1 Peter 1.10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. He says this, when it was, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, the church. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The Hebrew scriptures are breathed out by the Holy Spirit through men like Moses, David, Ezra, Solomon, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and other prophets. And as they wrote down what the Spirit was inspiring, they knew they were writing. They knew they were writing about the suffering and resurrection of a coming Messiah, and they knew they were writing for an audience in the future. They just didn't understand who the Messiah was going to be and when he was going to arrive. And after his resurrection, Jesus even expected his disciples to understand and believe that the whole burden and the purpose of the Old Testament is to point its hearers to anticipate the Messiah's sufferings and resurrection and his final supremacy. And on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection in Luke 24, he says, oh foolish ones, they're foolish. Slow to heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. We, and we know, and, and as, as you have read your Bibles, you know that Adam and Eve expected him. Enoch walked with him. Noah's ark foreshadowed him. Job looked to him. 
Abraham anticipated him. Jacob wrestled with him. Joseph prefigured him. The Hebrews were redeemed out of Egypt by him. And in the burning bush, Moses heard him. On the mountain, Moses spoke with him. The law guides us to him. Joshua followed him. Samson foreshadowed him. David sang about him. Solomon pointed to him. Elijah ate bread prepared by him. Nebuchadnezzar dreamt of him. Daniel spoke of him. Esther prefigured him. Ezra and Nehemiah prepared for him. Isaiah saw and predicted him. Hosea loved like him. And all the prophets wrote of him. And of course, John the Baptist paved the way for him. And the Bible's central agenda is to point us to the supremacy of Christ that dominates the pages of human history. And of course, the pages of the Bible. The Bible's central question and mankind's deepest answer is, or deepest question is answered in the resurrection and the ascension and the supremacy of Christ. Historians, philosophers, psychologists, scientists, lawyers, archaeologists, and agnostics all admit, indeed, the Bible is alive, and there is no book like it in history. And we will see why the resurrection of Jesus and his following supremacy made a titanic impact on the followers of this little Jewish sect who risked it all for the sake of the historically verifiable resurrection and ascension of Christ. And all the mysteries and the questions of the Old Testament are revealed and answered in the face of their resurrected supreme Messiah. And at the resurrection, the blessings of God that the Jews were looking for are blown open like a massive dam, giving way to a reservoir of life-giving water. And anytime you hear language that elevates Jesus as the true and better, like in the book of Hebrews, or uses resurrection language, that's all code for supremacy. That's the supremacy of Christ. So let's look at one picture of how the Bible points us to Jesus Christ in his threefold office as prophet, priest, and king. And there's, there's kind of a lead up to this, and it starts in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 prophesies, it's the famous psalm that prophesies the crucifixion of the Messiah in shocking detail. Hundreds of years before the historical founding of Rome, even. And before, of course, its Roman crucifixions were ever imagined. At the end of Psalm 22, it says this in Psalm 22, verse 30. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord of the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Here, even David, by the Holy Spirit, knows he's writing Hebrew poetry about a coming divine supreme king from his royal line. And some future generation will hear the proclamation of this divine king's achieved righteousness. This is the key. Psalm 22 is about righteousness achieved. And more specifically, a future people will hear the announcement that this Messiah King has done it. He has secured, guaranteed, achieved righteousness. Here we have a psalm that announces a coming prophet and his righteousness. So Psalm 22 is about a prophet and achieved righteousness. That leads into, literarily, Psalm 23, which we all know, of course. The next psalm, Psalm 23, another famous psalm that Christians around the world through the ages have memorized and prayed and cherished, especially in suffering and near death. Psalm 23 is connected in the literary context to the end of Psalm 22, 
which announces, of course, as we just looked at, the coming prophets achieve righteousness for his people. But Psalm 23 starts by illustrating metaphorically how this divine Messiah will shepherd his people as a priest and lead them in paths of righteousness. Verse 1 to 3, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. So Psalm 23 takes the prophet's righteousness achieved and announced in Psalm 22, and it shows how he is the good priest shepherd who comforts his people by applying righteousness to them for the glory of his name. So where Psalm 22 is about a prophet who achieves righteousness, Psalm 23 is about a priest who applies righteousness. And then that leads into our, the psalm that we're going to look at mainly for the rest of this time is Psalm 24. Psalm 24 consists in three parts. Each part or a scene paints a different picture or a different portrait of God. There's God as creator in verses 1 to 2. God's holy hill in verses 3 to 6. And God as victorious king. Verses 7 to 10. According to Jewish tradition, this psalm, Psalm 24, was used, this is really fascinating, was used in worship every Sunday during their captivity in Babylon. In the exile, the Jews celebrated Yahweh's kingship, his supremacy on every day of the week, and Sundays were exclusively set apart for Psalm 24. And then, according to Christian tradition, so after the resurrection and ascension, according to Christian tradition, Psalm 24 was sung on Ascension Day. Throughout church history, Christians have interpreted this psalm as pointing to Christ's resurrection and subsequent ascension and supremacy. So again, this first scene is the earth. God is creator, verses 1 to 2. Then there's this, the, it's like the camera, as it were, pans to the second scene. God's holy hill, so earth, God's holy hill, verses 3 to 6. The mount of the Lord, Mount Zion. The, so it's, of course, it's the historical reference is referring to the hill that goes to Jerusalem. But theologically, even the Jews, even when they're not in Jerusalem in the exile, they sang this in Babylon, knowing that they're singing about Mount Zion in heaven. And as the early Christians, who no longer needed a temple, of course, they worshiped the Lord. And this psalm is indeed painting a picture of, a picture of heaven's Mount Zion. Remarkably, as verses 1 to 2 speak of God's initial creation, so remember, verses 1 to 2 is about God as creator in his dwelling place on earth. Verses 3 to 6, they allude to paradise lost in the Garden of Eden because, this is, this is so fascinating, the Garden of Eden was actually on a mountain called the Mountain of God, according to Ezekiel twenty-eight thirteen. And there was a garden on the east side of Eden, which was where God dwelt. So God dwelt in a garden on the east side of Eden, on the top of a mountain. It was a garden temple. It's no coincidence that after Moses gave the law, the interior of the Old Testament tabernacle and temple is decorated like a garden with pomegranate trees and, and other, other plants within the inside. 
And in the New Jerusalem, in Revelation 21 to 22, it's also described as a garden temple with the imagery of the Old Testament tabernacle and the temple in the Garden of Eden. And when Adam is banished from God's presence, which direction does he go? He goes out the east of Eden, and God put cherubim there, threatening death to anyone entering the perfect presence of God on his mountain again. And in this psalm, David, he looks up to Mount Zion and asks the obvious question, who can enter the presence of Yahweh, the Holy One? And the answer comes back to him that only the blameless may enter his presence. So in verse, verse 3, David asks, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? And then God's answer from his holy hill is this. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face, the God of Jacob. So the Lord expects purity, singleness of heart for all who seek his presence. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purity of hands, heart, it's the condition for living blamelessly before God. Appearance of holiness is not enough. There's an innate yearning among God's true people to dwell with Yahweh in a life that is flooded with the beatific vision, the vision of God. And this longing is, is, is expressed well as the one thing that David asked for in Psalm 27. He says, one thing I've asked of Yahweh, one thing that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life to behold the beauty of Yahweh and to meditate in his temple. But here then the question is, well, how is that possible? How can one of Adam's cursed descendants ever hope to dwell in God's presence in heaven's Mount Zion, let alone ever have the chance to meet with God in Jerusalem in the Holy of Holies? How is it possible for a guilty, shameful, fearful person broken by the curse ever to enter the presence of the Holy One and live? Not to mention all this talk about dwelling joyfully in the presence of God on Mount Zion. Well, one commentator says this. He says, quote, in many ways, in many ways, this, what I just stated, is the fundamental question. It's the fundamental question of Israel's religion and indeed of life itself. And then he quotes Psalm 15.1. He says, O Yahweh, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy mountain? That's the interpretive question of the Jewish burden, he says. And in Psalm 24, similarly, the question is, who may ascend the mountain of Yahweh? Who may stand in his holy place? In a way, the Bible is written to answer that question. The burden of the Old Testament and the controlling question in the Jewish mind was who can ascend the mountain of Yahweh? Who can go back to Eden? This is the unsolved mystery, so to speak, that baffled the Jews, which the New Testament, of course, unveils. So the question is, since we have the New Testament, well, what about us? Is this about what we must do to enter the presence of the Lord? I mean, how many of us have read this that, you know, Really, we've got to clean our hands. We've got to really have pure hearts before God and just really work on our, our sanctification to come back into his presence. Is this instruction for how we should grow in integrity so that we can have a 
a better, a better relationship with God. The burden of verse 3 is simply saying that the ground upon which anyone could, could stand in the presence of God is essentially blamelessness, holiness, and purity. So, are our hands clean? Is our heart pure? Have we let our hearts follow after those things that are false, worldly, and vain? Do we always speak the truth? Based on the state of our thought life, daydreaming fantasies, desires, aspirations, words, time management, financial spending, and overall actions, could we ascend to Mount Zion and stand joyfully, in, blamelessly in his holy place? Are we good enough? What do we have to do to ensure that we're good enough? Surrender all, try harder, be better, follow the rules more? Well, of course, if you were good enough, what would the result be? Well, the one whose heart is clean and hands are pure, well, they'll receive blessing from God and righteousness from the God of our salvation. So is this a prescription? Is this, is this, a, is this a code of living from the Lord to try harder, grow in integrity so that we can come into some sort of perfect blamelessness? Does the Bible teach that if we do this, we can receive righteousness? Well, of course. The guarantee is for anyone who has the ability and the desire to perfectly and perpetually love God and neighbor, well, of course this is true. And verse 5 tells us that the man who has clean hands and a pure heart will not only ascend Mount Zion and stand, not fall, but stand in his holy place, but he's also going to be blessed and get righteousness. But any good Hebrew who has read this psalm would know that 10 psalms earlier in Psalm 14, it says, there's none who does good. Not even one. There's no one who can ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place. Because the Bible says that all of Adam's descendants, there's nobody righteous. And yet God provides one, the Son of God, the better Adam, who is able and worthy to ascend the mountain of the Lord and stand in his holy place. And that one, he has clean hands and he has a pure heart. He will receive the well-deserved blessing and righteousness of God. But what's great news is that the psalmist does not abandon those of us whose hearts and hands condemn us. Well, so then you ask, well, how do you know? What, what do you mean? What are you saying? Well, look at verse 6. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So if, if you can hear what the psalmist is saying, the people... The people who seek the face of God, which is just language or code for trust in God. That's another way of saying it in the Hebrew scriptures. The people who seek the face of God, who rest in God, the remnant, the, the, the people who through faith are united to Messiah, they, they will receive blessing and righteousness. Those who look to him have access to him. And the, on the cross, as prophesied in Psalm 22, the righteousness achieved by Christ was credited to all who would believe and the sin of all who would believe is credited to Christ. It's the great exchange. The Bible more clearly explains in Romans 5, 1-2, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also, here it is, obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God.
And the Hebrew construction in verse 6 of Psalm 24 is really interesting. It says, such or this here, it's, it's a way of kind of identifying, this here is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God. And in the Hebrew, it just says, it's like a dash, like in English, Jacob. In other words, the people who seek the face of God, the people who rest in God, are identified as the remnant. They are Jacob. Jacob was one of the names of the true spiritual people of God among ethnic Israel, among some of the unbelieving ethnic Israel in the Old Testament. Jacob is the remnant. Those who have faith alone in Yahweh and by their faith like Abraham are counted as righteous. They are the remnant. The God seekers are credited as righteous through faith in the God who rewards them with blessing and righteousness. It's amazing. It's good news. And then we come to the third and final scene of Psalm 24. Zion's gates, God as victorious king. It's at the city gates on top of Mount Zion. Psalm 22 spoke of the prophet and his righteousness achieved. And Psalm 23 spoke of the priest and his righteousness applied. Here, in Psalm 24, we see a king and righteousness announced. Righteousness announced. It's the final stanza in the psalm. There's a sudden shift of mood. The mood turns celebratory. It was initially inquisitive. Now it's celebratory. It says, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Mount Zion has gates and ancient doors that open up for Yahweh, this warrior king. And throughout the history of the church, this is one of the main texts used to commemorate the resurrection, subsequent ascension, and current supremacy of Christ on heaven's Mount Zion. It's a beautiful psalm when you understand its moving scenes. The point of the psalm makes sense messianically, especially as it connects to Psalm 22 and 23. So again, the movements of the psalm, Psalm 1 to 2, the majestic sovereignty of God ruling over all the world that he created in a garden temple on the mountain of Eden in in the initial creation. And then verses 3 to 6, the psalm inquires, "Who's, who's worthy to ascend that mountain after we've been booted out? And answers that only he who has clean hands and a pure heart The reward of such a blameless man will be divine blessing and righteousness. And then for God's true remnant who rest in him and seek his face, the reward is equally true for them. But then in verses 7 to 10, as we just saw, exploding on the scene are the gates of the city of God, bursting with celebration and anticipation. So picture this. I mean, just picture this. A man, a man is ascending the mountain of the Lord. A man? Yeah one of Adam's descendants from earth. This has never happened before. Ever since Adam was banished from the garden, no one, none, not one of his descendants have ever ascended the mountain of Yahweh and stood blamelessly in God's presence. The face of this man has never been seen before in heaven. This person is no stranger to Mount Zion, to be sure. Only 33 years prior, he was heaven's eternal son, 
But now, the Son is ascending in a body like Adam. He is the Son of God and the Son of Man, the God-Man. He, is the, he has a divine human name, Yeshua, Mashiach, Jesus, Messiah, Joshua, the Anointed One of God. You see, Noah's Ark ascended Mount Ararat. Abraham ascended Mount Moriah. Moses ascended Mount Sinai. Elijah ascended Mount Horeb. But no one, no one has ever ascended Mount Zion in heaven. But here comes, here comes the better Adam who makes a way back to Eden. The better Ark who rescues God's people from the flood of judgment. The better Moses who delivers God's people from slavery to sin and mediates a better law, the gospel of grace. The better Joshua who crosses through the Jordan River and brings God's people back to the promised land. The better Israel, who obeyed the law of God perfectly and secured its blessings. The better David, who leads the people of God to victory over the accuser. The better temple in whom God's people worship. The better priest, who makes intercession for the people of God. The better Passover lamb, who takes away the sin of all who trust in his blood. And this man is God and he is with God. He is God with us by this man. All things were created. By this man, the story of human history is written. He governs all things. He is the melody line in the symphony of history. He is the foreground and the masterpiece of creation. He is the lead actor in the theater of God. He is the defense, the offense, the special teams, as it were, even the coach, the most valuable player of the winning team. He, he is the father of the fatherless. He is the friend of the lonely. He is the hope of the hopeless. He is the strength of the weak. He is the physician who heals you, the bridegroom who never leaves you, the shepherd who guides you, the rescuer who frees you, the judge who vindicates you, the warrior who protects you, and he is the lamb who dies for you. And most major religions in the world all treat mountains as holy places. I've been to the highest lake in the world in Tibet, and even on those mountains, they have, at the highest place in those mountains, they put prayer flags because those are the holiest places in their religion. Even Muslim mosques, the minarets, are supposed to be the highest place in any town to, to note supremacy, the highest place noting supremacy over everything else in a town. Every religion has this. There's something untouchable and mysterious about mountains even. Deep in all our hearts is this question, who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? And the answer is the Son of God and the Son of Man. The Lord, mighty in battle, the Lord potentate, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who has died and raised from the dead, the cherubim, guarded the holy presence of God. He has now stepped aside and now lets in all of God's people who through faith are united to Christ and are accredited with his blessing and righteousness. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered death through dying for his people, then rising victoriously as supreme to succeed himself as the rightful sovereign of heaven and earth, ruling from Mount Zion as the Son of God, the Son of Man, and the Son of David, supreme over all of creation. Then, once this man, this man ascended Mount Zion, the mountain of God, what did the king do? What did he do? Hebrews 1 to 3 says this, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
and ringing through the streets of the city, the worshipers of the Lamb saying, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord, sovereign, supreme of all. Crown him the Lord of life who triumphed over the grave and rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. His glories now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring, and lives that death may die. Crown him the Lord of years, the potentate of time, creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime. All hail, Redeemer, hail, for thou hast died for me. Thy praise shall never, never fail throughout eternity. In his spiritual autobiography, the great Baptist Puritan preacher John Bunyan said this, one day I was passing in the field and this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And with the eyes of my soul, I saw Jesus at the Father's right hand. There, I said, is my righteousness. Now that's true for all of us who through faith rest and seek that King. For those of you who trust in this risen, reigning, supreme Christ, your righteousness is achieved, it's applied, and it's announced so you can be assured. Your righteousness is in heaven, seated at the right hand of the majesty and high. You can say with Job, looking forward to your own resurrection, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. May we rest. May we rest. Rest in the resurrected victorious King. The Lion of Mount Zion. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, may we rest. May we rejoice and rest assured that Christ has achieved our righteousness. And we, we love you for it. May we marvel at the supremacy of Christ in all of life and live with grateful hearts, trusting in that good news to the bitter end. In Jesus' name, amen.